Hi, this is Father Dominic Legg, director of the Thomistic Institute. Thanks for tuning in to today's lecture. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for college students, perhaps at one of our campus chapters or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. Students today are hungry for the truth, and you know how important it is for them to find it. If this podcast has impacted you, that's because someone gave a donation to make these talks possible. So I'm wondering, would you do the same for someone else this December? Even a gift of $10 or $20 has a big impact. Your gift will bring the truth to college students and to many others in 2023 if you give before December 31st. And you can make a tax-deductible donation at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. That's www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Thank you for your generosity. And may God bless you this Advent and Christmas season. Aquinas' fourth way, humility versus skepticism in theological reasoning. When Thomas Aquinas proves that God exists, he doesn't think it's a big deal. To him, the proof is intellectually easy, historically uncontroversial, and even something of a compromise. It was a plain matter of empirical fact for him that the existence of God can be proven, indeed a matter of historical fact that it had been proven. Aquinas found the best philosophy, the best of philosophy in the Greek tradition to chart a middle path between treating God's existence as, on the one hand, perfectly self-evident and conceptually inescapable, and so not in need of proof, and on the other hand, as something entirely mysterious and exceeding human reason, and so not capable of proof. Aquinas had an ambitious project of natural theology in which there were highly significant moves for reason to make in pursuing a greater share of knowledge of God, a project with crucial space for rational uncertainty about the divine nature. But proving the existence of God was for him a simple entry-level exercise. By contrast, today many people assume that proving the existence of God is a daring, difficult, and elusive challenge, an intellectual moonshot, which, if possible to accomplish, would plant an important flag for the cause of religious apologetics. To many modern people, the only thing we know about whether God's existence can be proven is that we can argue about it endlessly, as David Hume suggests in his Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, which means that we can't really prove that God exists or even if we could, in principle, it wouldn't matter because any alleged proof, even if formally valid, would be subject to persistent, unanswerable objections. To assess these two perspectives, we must try to understand them each from the inside and see if we can trace our way from the more familiar to the less familiar. As an entry into Aquinas's presumably less familiar perspective, my lecture will begin by explaining the easiest part of that perspective, I will prove the existence of God and do so using what many consider the most obscure of Aquinas's five ways, namely the fourth. Second, I will reflect on how limited that proof is. Aquinas didn't think it was particularly difficult or controversial, and if I can help you see that the argument is successful, you might also find it rather underwhelming. Third, and the longest section of the lecture, I will reflect on the role of the proof in Aquinas' theological project. Proofs for the existence of God, 
though modest in their own right, have huge implications not only for how we conceive of God, but for how we conceive of human reason, its relation to Christian faith, and their role in the practical challenge of managing belief formation. What creates the distance between Aquinas' perspective and a more skeptical modern one is not so much the arguments themselves, which are not hard to understand, but the accompanying conception of the powers, purposes, and pragmatics of human cognition, which conceptions may seem unfamiliar, but are not wholly lost and are possible with some effort to entertain again. This will lead me, fourth and finally, to reflect on the ways in which Aquinas is engaged in managing epistemic risk in light of the limitations of human reason. In this sense, he invites comparison with modernity's great skeptic, Hume, whose dialogues are often treated as a foundational text in the philosophy of religion. Hume, like Aquinas, wants to be attuned to the challenges and limits of theological knowledge and tries to give the impression of considering a range of types of proof for the existence of God. And yet Hume does not and could not consider any of Aquinas' arguments from the Aristotelian tradition. Noticing Hume's careful omission sheds some light on the assumptions that his skeptical empiricism makes about nature, human cognition, and religious faith, assumptions which are not a priori in any way superior to, neither more rational nor more practical than Aquinas's very different Aristotelian approach to theological knowledge. So part one, the proof. Let's get this out of the way and prove God's existence. As I said, it's very easy and the logic is simple. True comparison of gradations in reality implies a maximal source, a first cause of actuality or being. This is Aquinas's fourth way. Aquinas distills the logic into three premises, which together clearly entail the conclusion. First premise, we notice gradations of actualization or perfection in things. As Aquinas puts it, among beings, there are some more and some less true, good, noble, and the like. Second premise, evaluating degrees of actualization or perfection implies a standard of comparison. Again, in Aquinas's words, but more and less are predicated of different things according as they resemble in their different ways something which is the maximum. And the maximum here is not just some perfection or other, but of the most basic perfection or actuality of reality. In Aquinas' reasoning, that's being. So that the comparison of gradations of actuality or perfection implies, quoting Aquinas again, that there is something which is truest, something best, something noblest, and consequently, something which is uttermost being. Third premise. What is maximal or perfect with respect to some quality must be the source of lesser degrees of that quality. Again, in Aquinas's words, now the maximum in any genus is the cause of all in that genus, as fire, which is the maximum heat, is the cause of all hot things. Conclusion, there must be something which possesses and is the source of all perfection or actualization. In Aquinas's words, therefore, there must also be something which is to all beings the cause of their being, goodness, and every other perfection, and this we call God. Let me briefly defend each premise. 
lest any of these claims, which in other contexts I think we would find uncontroversial, might seem like a weak point by which to escape the conclusion. So in defense of the first premise, <clears throat> we don't need to argue about which things count as perfections. We only need to agree that there are some things which are indeed good qualities and that these qualities can be had in greater or lesser degree. One could be more courageous than a coward and yet not as courageous as possible. A piece of art can be genuinely beautiful and yet not as beautiful as another piece of art. We don't have to compare or rank every virtuous person or every, virtu or every work of art. We only have to notice that some people are more virtuous and some things are more beautiful than others. This premise is really very modest. We make true judgments about the relative worth, value, truth, or nobility of different things, and by extension, of their relative imperfections. One organism can be lesser or more primitive than another, or a politician's lie can be more or less mendacious than another politician's lie, as implied by the so-called fact checkers who rank things on a scale of mostly true or mostly false. Defense of the second premise. Our comparisons or judgments of degrees of perfection imply a standard. We compare hot and cold days or larger and smaller portions with implicit maxima on both ends. A hot day has more heat. It's closer to absolute heat than a cold day. A smaller portion is closer to absolute smallness, nothingness, than a larger portion. We are not yet claiming that the implied standard exists in reality, only that our ability to compare depends on a cognition of standards. Our ability to grasp degrees of perfection implies a conception of that perfection. Moreover, insofar as perfections are more fully actual than imperfections, which are privations or lacks of the perfection, the discernment of gradations of perfection implies a discernment or gradation of actualization or being. Defense of the third premise. This may be the most difficult to defend, but it depends on the Aristotelian conception of formal causality. In cause and effect relationships, effects receive their qualities from causes. And since you can't get something from nothing, causes must already fully possess at least as much of whatever quality they pass on to their effects. If that sounds abstract in formulation, it is intuitive in your experience. You can't get the water to boil without getting it in proximity to a source of heat that is at least, ideally much more than, 100 degrees Celsius. You can't brighten a dim room without a light source that will project at least as much light as the room needs to be brighter. You can't hit the golf ball, that's my little nod to Scotland, all the way to the green without imparting at least enough force to it from the club. Likewise, things, things that receive goodness or nobility or truth must receive that goodness or nobility or truth from something that has at least as much goodness or nobility or truth. And things can receive any degree of being without receiving it from a source of being, which doesn't imply, which doesn't simply have some degree of being, but is being itself. Each premise makes sense then. And we take for granted, we take them for granted in other contexts. The conclusion logically follows from them. There must be some original source of perfection, of being, which is itself perfect and maximally is. If the source of perfection in being were less than perfect and less than fully real, that would imply that it does not possess perfection and actuality per se, essentially, but only as received from a prior source. Only ori the original source of being and actuality can possess being and perfection per se. 
but then the original source possesses the perfection and actuality maximally. That is, it is itself perfect and actual and the source of all other partial degrees of perfection and actuality. Indeed, is the source of the very being of all things. Part two, limitations of the proof. Now let us reflect on what this proof has and hasn't told us, especially if you are able to follow the reasoning and allow that the argument is successful, you might still find it rather disappointing. What has it proven the existence of? A highest paradigm of perfection, a source of truth, goodness, and being? That's impressive, but it could sound like a rather abstract and impersonal thing, perhaps uh, ontologically real, but hardly divine, something like the Platonic exemplar, logically necessary, but hardly practically useful, certainly not to religion. A per se cause of perfection is not exactly what most people have in mind when they ask whether God exists. Most people, I think, imagine that a proof for the existence of God will prove the existence of some all-powerful spiritual being, something personally overseeing creation, something deserving of worship, something or rather someone who rules as worthy Lord of the universe and to whom we have a duty to submit. Is the fourth way's source of actuality such a god? It doesn't necessarily sound so. On the basis of this proof, we do not know if this first cause is an immaterial or physical being. We don't know if it is alive or intelligent, unless, of course, we assume that life and intelligence are actualizations or perfections, but that assumption is beyond the strict terms of the proof. We don't even know if there's only one such source, or perhaps more than one. It seems to require arguments beyond the proof itself to establish what the perfections are and that each has its same source in perfection of being itself. On the basis of the demonstration, then, we know almost nothing about this God except that it is the exemplar cause, the first in a chain of cause and effect capable of passing on perfection or actuality, whatever it may be, and possessing it in a maximal way. It is not difficult to imagine someone accepting the reasoning of the proof and yet remaining in a way a sincere atheist in the sense of assuming that this first thing, the source of perfection, is a lifeless abstract paradigm, irrelevant to embodied human life, or that is, it is simply an impersonal cosmic force, perhaps the stoic logos or Spinoza's nature itself, or even arguing that perhaps there are multiple first such sources, one for each type of perfection. The ultimate cause of being qua being, whose existence this argument establishes, does not yet sound like the Christian God, or even the so-called God of classical theism. Why do we even say that a demonstration of a source of perfection is a proof of God's existence? The proof itself doesn't even mention God. God does not appear in the premises, and so of course God is also not in the conclusion. Where is the concept of God in the proof? It's a demonstration from effects to a cause, and what it proves the existence of is an uncaused cause, a source of perfection. Here's how Aquinas puts it. There, therefore, there must also be something which is to all beings the cause of their being, goodness, and every other perfection. After stating this conclusion, Aquinas seems to sneak in reference to God by a kind of appended assertion, and this we call God. That we conceive of the cause of perfection as God is not even formally part of the proof, but an interpretive appendix, extrinsic to the demonstration's logic. 
we might ask, ask then, in what sense do we understand this linguistic usage? What does Aquinas mean when he says that everyone understands the cause of perfection whose existence he's proven is what we mean by the term God? Apparently, this is a kind of empirical observation about a community of language users. We have to take him at his word that one of the things this community means by God is first uh, origin of actuality or of being. We can accept that, but obviously most people mean a lot more by God than that, as we have seen. And also, as we have seen, this proof is absolutely silent on whether the God whose existence it establishes has those other features that believers in God or even unbelievers in God would normally associate with God. You might think that some of the other features could be addressed by Aquinas's other proofs. I've been talking about the fourth, the most contested and obscure of Aquinas's famous five ways. And Aquinas offers four other distinct arguments for the existence of God in his Summa Theologiae. In a parallel section of the Summa Contra Gentiles, he gives three arguments for the existence of God. The second one there corresponds to the fourth way, and there and in the Summa, he attributes it, and the first way, to Aristotle. All of Aquinas's arguments follow the same general inference, reasoning back from some known effect to some primary cause. So depending on the kind of effect and the relevant mode of causality, each proof establishes the existence of a distinctive kind of cause, and each one ends with the claim, and this we call God. In the first way, Aquinas proves the existence of a cause of motion, which itself is not subject to being moved. In the second way, Aquinas proves the existence of a first efficient cause of all change, including changes other than motion. In the third way, he proves the existence of a source of necessity. In the fifth way, Aquinas proves the existence of a source of order, implying intelligence and a final cause or purpose. Taken together, then, the set of proofs might convey something more like what we expect from a proof of God's existence, but note that each proof is considered separately conclusive. Each one proves the existence of something that we call God. And it would take further argumentation to establish that there is only one of each, and that each one is identical with the other, and that the first agent is the ultimate goodness and the intelligent governor of the universe. So each proof clearly establishes its conclusion, but the conclusion for each is only the existence of some mode of primary cause. The same is true even if we consider a sixth proof, often considered the most challenging, from Aquinas's metaphysical treatise on being and essence. The logic here, as for the others, moves from observed effects to a cause, in this case the observed effect being the distinction of everything from its being, which implies some first being which has no such distinction, a being in which what it is and its existence are one and the same. Like Aquinas's other arguments, this too can be traced to Aristotle. It is presumably a variation on an argument from Book 12 of the Metaphysics for the existence of a pure actuality. This is a potent notion, and philosophers may get significant mileage reflecting on the uniqueness of pure actuality, of divine simplicity, or unqualified being. But in and of itself, proving the existence of something in which being and essence are not really distinct is, like the other proofs, a fairly straightforward matter. And we can also admit that perhaps apart from those who have meditated on God's self-revelation to Moses in the burning bush, this is not what, in common discourse, most people have in mind when they use the word God. 
So now to part three, the context and purpose of the proofs. Aquinas' proofs of God's existence can only be properly appreciated in terms of the role of proof in his larger theological project. And this project reveals important features of Aquinas' understanding of how and in what way knowledge can fulfill us as rational creatures. Aquinas considers proofs of God's existence in strictly philosophical works, in On Being and Essence, as mentioned, and in commentaries on Aristotle's physics and metaphysics. But as we have seen, his most famous arguments are situated near the beginning of ambitious works of sacred science, explicitly Christian theological works. The five ways are near the beginning of the Summa Theologiae, the third article of the second question of the first part, and a parallel treatment giving three arguments one of them with extensive detail is in the 13th chapter of the first part of his earlier Summa Contra Gentiles. Scholars argue over the significance of the differences between the two theological summae, but both start by taking for granted a role for natural reason in seeking a real but limited knowledge of God. A specifically Christian theology or sacred wisdom is introduced as a necessary complement to the philosophical source of knowledge. So the Summa Contra Gentiles speaks of a twofold mode of truth. That's in chapter three, with some truths demonstrable by reason and other truths surpassing reason and only available to us by faith in divine revelation. Still, reason plays a role even in the defense of distinctively Christian truths only knowable by faith. In addition to proving what is within reason's grasp, Confidence in the unity of truth means for Aquinas that reason can, in principle, defend against putatively rational objection what can only be grasped by faith. So here is Aquinas in the eighth chapter of the Summa Contra Gentiles, describing how reason can play a role in helping our limited minds to accept truths of faith, precisely because we trust that all things are related to God as effects to a first cause. Quoting Aquinas, Sensible things from which the human reason takes the origin of its knowledge retain within themselves some sort of trace of a likeness to God. This is so imperfect, however, that it is absolutely inadequate to manifest the substance of God, for effects bear within themselves, in their own way, the likeness of their causes, since an agent produces its like, yet an effect does not always reach to the full likeness of its cause. Now the human reason is related to the knowledge of the true faith, a truth which can be most evident only to those who see the divine substance, in such a way that it can gather certain likenesses of it, still quoting Aquinas here, which are not yet sufficient so that the truth of faith may be comprehended as being understood demonstratively or through itself. Yet it is useful, continuing with Aquinas, for the human reason to exercise itself in such arguments, however weak they may be, provided only that there be present no presumption to comprehend or to demonstrate. For to be able to see something of the loftiest realities, however thin and weak the sight may be, is, as our previous remarks indicate, a cause of the greatest joy. Thus, Summa Contra Gentiles introduces Christian theology as a fulfillment of the philosophic pursuit of wisdom. In the Summa Theologiae, Aquinas sharpens the question to ask, as the very first point of inquiry, whether there is any need 
for a science of wisdom beyond philosophy. In other words, right from the start, Aquinas seeks to locate Christian theology or sacred doctrine as a science, a discipline of knowledge, relative to and perfective of the already theological but inherently limited pagan philosophical science. Quoting Aquinas, it was necessary for man's salvation that there should be a teaching revealed by God beyond the philosophical disciplines which are investigated by human reason. First, indeed, because man is directed to God as to an end that surpasses the grasp of reason. The eye hath not seen, O God, besides thee, what things thou hast prepared for them that love thee, quoting Isaiah. But the end must first be known by men who are to direct their thoughts and actions to the end. Hence, it was necessary for the salvation of man that certain truths which exceed human reason should be made known to him by divine revelation. Second, even as regards those truths about God which human reason could have discovered, Aquinas con continues, it was necessary that man should be taught by our divine revelation because the truth about God such as reason could discover would only be known by a few, and that after a long time, and with the admixture of many errors. Whereas man's whole salvation, which is in God, depends upon the knowledge of this truth. Therefore, in order that the salvation of men might be brought about more fitly and more surely, it was necessary that they should be taught divine truths by divine revelation. It was therefore necessary, he says, that besides philosophical science built up by reason, there should be a sacred science learned through revelation. So the whole point of theology is to use God's help to get human beings to where they are designed by God to go, namely into deeper knowledge of God than unaided human nature can achieve. While we typically think of this in terms of our achieving knowledge, Aquinas highlights the role of God himself helping us to manage the challenge of avoiding error. We can think of his project as a kind of divine epistemic risk management. What is clear in both texts is that for Aquinas, Christian faith is not an alternative to knowledge, but a fulfillment of it. Faith offers a kind of knowledge that must be understood in relation to, although it cannot be reduced to, philosophical knowledge, and which is fully rational insofar as rejecting it would ensure that we remain unable to achieve the end, knowledge of God, that even pagan philosophical wisdom acknowledges. Moreover, because philosophy is both difficult and prone to error, and even at its best is limited in what it can achieve, it's, sorry, moreover, because philosophy is both difficult and prone to error, even at its best, it is limited in what it can achieve. It is fitting not only that it can be completed by Christian theology, but that most people, if they are going to know what they need to know, they will not know it thanks to their reason exercised in philosophy, they will know it through faith. Just on the question of God's existence, for instance, although a philosopher can easily prove it, as I did earlier, most people don't need any such philosophical proof. They believe on the basis of God revealing himself by other means. When people today hear about faith, they might think of personal non-intellectual convictions only arbitrarily related to what is discoverable by canons of rationality. So it is worth making explicit that for Aquinas, faith and reason are both modes of intellectual cognition. Both faith and reason are inherently rational, seeking the good of reason, namely truth. 
Considering cognition as a mode of grasping reality, both faith and reason presume that reality has an intrinsic intelligibility to which our mind is naturally but imperfect, imperfectly adapted. Both faith and reason are also inherently social. Philosophical argument and the articulation of faith are for human beings not the activities of abstracted angelic minds, but of embodied personal beings. Human knowing through both reason and faith is dialectical and relational. We develop arguments in conversation with others. We receive faith through the testimony of others. Moreover, both faith and reason are for Aquinas inherently theological. Philosophy is oriented to the whole of reality and its causes, all ultimately deriving from the ultimate cause of causes, God. This is the root of the, the Thomistic conviction in the harmony of faith and reason. Not that they are merely compatible because they have different domains, but that they cannot conflict because they are both concerned with the same domain, the same ultimate truth of reality. Here is Aquinas quoting again from the Summa Contra Gentiles. That, was, that which is introduced into the soul of the student by the teacher is contained in the knowledge of the teacher, unless his teaching is fictitious, which it is improper to say of God. Now the knowledge of the principles that are known to us naturally has been implanted in us by God, for God is the author of our nature. These principles, therefore, are also contained by the divine wisdom. Hence, whatever is opposed to them is opposed to the divine wisdom and therefore cannot come from God. That which we hold by faith as divinely revealed, therefore, cannot be contrary to our natural knowledge. Finally, this means that both faith and reason have a practical role in human life. They fulfill us as rational beings. Aristotle's metaphysics begins by noting that all men, by nature, desire to know an anthropological assertion with practical implications explored at the end of the Nicomachean Ethics, where human happiness is described as contemplation. Knowledge of God is not an academic exercise, but an existential calling, a promise of fulfillment, communing with the divine through our intellectual nature. For Aquinas in its purest form, it describes Christian blessedness, seeing God face to face in heaven. In this context, in which faith and reason are the powers that lead us to fulfillment in God, what good are reason's proofs of God's existence? They are not necessary for our salvation, and we can believe in God without them. And even those who are privileged to follow the rational demonstrations are not necessarily made better or closer to God by them. So what is their benefit? And why do they appear so early in Aquinas' theological works? First, the proofs do establish with certainty the existence of something. Contrary to those who say that God's existence is self-evident and so trivially true, and those who say that it can't be proven at all, Aquinas does believe that knowledge of God's existence can be a rational achievement. Second, they offer a basis for reflecting on God's nature, say his immateriality or simplicity. The proofs discipline our intellects and purify our concepts so that we are better able to understand. God. Third, they help us make aware of the limits of our own knowledge and our need for faith. Even at its most extensive, natural theology cannot exhaust God's nature and cannot even make known to us what we need to know for our salvation. Finally, in their emphasis on God as cause, 
the proofs serve as a strong reminder of our contingency, our dependence, our lives and everything in creation as a gift. If philosophically the proofs can inspire wonder, practically they can inspire humility, gratitude, and piety. So part four, the modern philosophy of religion project. I've described Aquinas's proofs for the existence of God as part of a project of disciplining reason, managing epistemic risk, and ordering the soul by the virtue of piety. A similar description could be offered for the much different project of David Hume in his Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, a work apparently designed to leave no place for proofs for the existence of God and widely regarded as undermining the Thomistic vision of reason's capacity for theological knowledge. Hume seems to construct his dialogues to give different voices representing traditional theology a chance to defend arguments against skeptical critique. In the end, the arguments don't withstand these critiques, and it appears that Hume intended the dialogues to give victory to the skeptic. Yet, the two main arguments, one from Cleanthes in part two and one from Demia in part nine, are carefully designed by Hume to avoid presenting the Aristotelian Thomistic perspective. Cleanthes offers an argument from design. His reasoning is that the world has a complexity and organization that resembles that of a machine. And he argues by analogy that it must be related to an intelligent maker as a machine is related to an intelligent builder. He does not invoke a general principle that order implies intelligence. Instead, he insists that the reasoning is by an analogy. The similarities between nature and a machine suggest some similarity between the causes of nature and of human intelligence. Cleanthes, like all of the characters in Hume's dialogues, is an empiricist, and so he relies ultimately on experience as the source of knowledge. Superficially, Cleanthes' argument recalls Aquinas' fifth way about order. But Aquinas' reasoning is very different from Cleanthes. For Aquinas, there is a general truth of causality. Whatever lacks intelligence cannot move towards an end unless it be directed by some being endowed with knowledge and intelligence as the arrow is shot to its mark by the archer. Aquinas does not rely on an analogy between an arrow and the world from which to advance a further analogy between the archer and God. Instead, he invokes a principle that intelligence is the power to order and direct things to an end. And then he illustrates the principle with an example, the archer and the arrow. Cleanthes' analogy relying on experience is at best a probabilistic inference. At, at uh, part two, section 14, Philo explicitly denies that this principle can be known with certainty, only probabilistically inferred. Aquinas' reasoning is a matter of intellectual certainty based on a knowledge of the nature of causality. The other main argument for God's existence that Hume formulates through the more rationalist character Demia happens in part, uh, section three of part nine. It involves a reductio about an infinite chain of causes, and some commentators describe it as a cosmological argument or an argument for a first cause. It appears to have similarities to Aquinas's second way, the proof of a first efficient cause, or to his third way, proof of a being existing by necessity. But the similarity is superficial. Demia insists on characterizing his argument as an a priori argument, that is relying only on concepts, relations of ideas, without any empirical element or appeals to matters of fact. 
His goal is to show that we must believe in a necessarily existent being because it would be a contradiction of reason, not of observable phenomena, to suppose that God doesn't exist. In other words, what Demia intends is less a cosmological argument than what we now call an ontological argument, or a claim that God's existence is self-evident, which is one of the views that Aquinas himself repudiated before giving his own proofs. Hume constructed the dialogue so that it would be easy for both of the arguments, Cleanthes and Demias, to be criticized and shown to be inconclusive. To an uninformed reader, it could thus appear that natural theology itself has been defeated. But a more informed reader notices that the most important tradition of natural theology, the Aristotelian proofs integrated by Aquinas into Christian theology, are missing. What can we infer from this? Hume had to exclude Thomistic reasoning from the dialogues, not only because the skeptical critiques that he used against the arguments he did consider would not work against Thomistic reasoning, but because the Thomistic reasoning relies on conceptions of causality that Hume would not even entertain. As we have seen, the Thomistic perspective on theological knowledge depends on several things, depending on cognition of causality, that Hume could not accept. A conception of human nature, a notion of duty arising from that nature, and a confidence in God as the origin of our nature and the ultimate object of our duty. Aquinas, following Cicero, thus characterized piety as a virtue of acknowledging our certain metaphysical dependence. Hume's dialogues can be read as an attempt to reposition piety as something else altogether, unrelated to knowledge and unrelated to causality at all. Hume's skepticism manifests itself in the dialogues then not by defeating Thomistic natural theology, but by fencing it out. Aristotelian reasoning cannot be considered, even though Aquinas in his own way uses Aristotle to manifest an alternative kind of skepticism, a cognitive humility or epistemic risk management, precisely because of his embrace of the things that Hume rejected, the intelligibility of causality, including the nature's duties and ends of beings created by the source of all being. And so a conclusion on the miracle of faith. That Hume's response to the Aristotelian tradition is not a critique, but an avoidance, is perhaps most manifest in his treatment of miracles. It is a great irony that Hume, otherwise never to be outdone when it comes to skepticism of causes and natures, also made arguments against miracles as impossible and irrational because they were contrary to the natural course of events. Indeed, the philosopher most famous for arguing that we can know nothing about causality in nature becomes rather confident in the law-like behavior of nature when arguing against miracles. Is this simply the inconsistency of an atheist denying teleology in nature, but also denying the possibility of special divine action? I don't think so. The reason Hume could not accept an account of miracles is that if things, don't, if things don't have natures as effects of a first cause, then neither are they such as to be subject to extraordinary action by the first cause. Hume doesn't have an account of why things would behave regularly. This is literally an irrational assumption for him. So the idea of nature is governed by an eternal law is something of which he is skeptical. But for the same reason, he cannot countenance an explanation according to which what constitutes the distinctive natures of things could, by special action, admit of exceptions to such nature's regular activity. 
Hume, in other words, misses that for those who believe in them, miracles manifest God acting in an exceptional way in a world in which he is always acting already anyway. Hume actually gets the logic of miracles wrong, as if there's supposed to be some evidence that God did something before one believes in a miracle, rather than the miracle itself being the evidence that God is acting in an extraordinary capacity. Accordingly, Hume misses that people believing a miracle is its Hume misses that people believing in a miracle is itself a miracle. That is, believers are made aware of something not thanks to their own natural powers, but thanks to a supernatural gift, the grace of God. Here is Aquinas on faith as a miracle, describing the testimony of early Christians. When these arguments were examined, Aquinas says, through the efficacy of the above-mentioned proof, and not the violent assault of arms or the promise of pleasure, and what is most wonderful of all, in the midst of the tyranny of the persecutors, an innumerable throng of people, both simple and most learned, flocked to the Christian faith. In this faith there are truths preached that surpass every human intellect. The pleasures of the flesh are curved. It is taught that the things of the world should be spurned. Now for the minds of mortal men to assent to these things is the greatest of miracles, just as it, as it is a manifest work of divine inspiration that spurning visible things, men should seek only what is invisible. That's from Summa Contra Gentiles, part one, chapter six. In other words, although reason can prove the existence of God, a greater testimony to the existence of God is the fact that so many people believe in God and specifically in the God of Christianity without the work of such proofs at all. The conversion of believers to faith is itself evidence of the truth of faith as faith could only make sense as an effect of a cause fit to produce it. Another passage from Aquinas. This wonderful conversion of the world to the Christian faith is the clearest witness of the signs given in the past, so that it is not necessary that they should be further repeated, since they appear most clearly, in their effect. For it would be truly more wonderful than all signs if the world had been led by simple and humble men to believe such lofty truths, to accomplish such difficult actions, and to have such high hopes. If you are called to the philosophical science, by all means, explore Aquinas' proofs for the existence of God and the rest of his natural theology. But know that they only confirm, by rational demonstration, what is made evident every day, especially in the miracle of believing Christians, that our lives and powers and paths as rational beings are gifts given from an original transcendent source Whatever finite good or nobility, whatever activity and power we are capable of, we are indebted for our origin, our pattern, and our purpose to a great God, the original source of being, who is so perfectly and fully actual that he surpasses human reason. Thank you very much. <laughs>